Good morning, church family. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. I'm so grateful for the Bible Project putting that video together a few years ago. We've actually watched it as a church before, but it seemed very appropriate for this week. Justice is the heart of God. It's the cry of our world, and it's the job of the church. Justice is the heart of God. It's the cry of our world, particularly right now. And it's the job of the church. And so before we get into our sermon this morning, I just want to touch on a couple things that are on many of your minds. The first question that we've received a lot this week is, how are we as Park Community Church responding to injustice, and particularly racial injustice? And as I said, justice is the heart of God, it's the cry of the world, and it's the job of the church. So if it is the job of the church... How is Park Community Church responding to racial injustice? I'm glad that you asked. Here is our primary answer. Our posture is first to listen and to learn, and our practice is to love. Now, we are a, a racially diverse church, but we're primarily white. And so we have many different languages and colors and people groups that worship at Park Community Church, but the dominant skin color is Caucasian. And so I want you to know if you do have whiter skin color that our first job, our posture is to listen and to learn from those who have a different life experience than us. And our practice as a church is always to love. It always has been and it always will be to love. The past two weeks, the staff and I have spent a lot of time trying to learn and listen from different pastors and leaders and people in our church, people of color in our own church. One of the phrases that I heard from a pastor here in the Twin Cities that really stuck with me as I seek to listen and to learn is that America was established by white people and it works really well for them. A pastor in our city shared that, and it really just hit me as, as this reality, because I always think, I, I'm not racist, and many people in our church aren't racist, but we fail to realize how there is systemic racism in our world, in the structures of our country that work against people of color. I, I think that Bible Project video hit on it really well, and again, this quote, America was established by white people, and it worked really well for them. And that's been convicting me all week, and I've been just wrestling with that. And I want you as a church to know that this issue is trending right now, but we as a church, we want to stay in the trenches on it. I actually believe that we've been in the trenches on this for quite some time. If you've been a part of Park Community Church, you've heard us over and over again. Almost weekly, we say that all people are created in the image and likeness of God, and that Jesus came to establish a kingdom on earth for himself of all people, of all colors, of all races, of all cultures. And so we say that regularly. And I want to just encourage us to stay in the trenches on justice, on racial justice. And so first thing that we're doing is continuing to listen and to learn and to practice love. Now, a couple things. We have some resources to help us learn about racial injustice. And so if you go to our website, I think that link is being dropped into the live chat chat right now. If you go to our website, our staff and leaders have compiled a bunch of different resources, books, songs, sermons, messages that we've heard on racial justice over the last couple of years. And it's just a starting list, but there's some resources there to help you learn about racial injustices, particularly in America. And then thirdly, there are resources to help us learn about biblical justice. So if there is racial injustice, and there is, you cannot deny that if you open your eyes and look around. Our response is to learn more and press more into biblical justice. 
If God's heart is justice, if the cry of our world is for justice, and if it's the church's job to bring justice to bear on earth, we need to learn about what biblical justice looks like. And so there's a few resources. The Bible Project podcast, they have a three-part series on biblical justice. They did a ton of background and research to to create that short little five-minute video that we showed you just a few minutes ago. And so if you listen to those three podcasts, that's kind of all the background work that they did to help compress that five-minute video. It's a great podcast. I encourage you to check that out. Tim Keller wrote a book called Generous Justice, a great read. I read that about a year ago. I highly encourage you to read through that. And then we actually did two sermons on justice here at Park Community Church in October. So if you go to our website, you can find those sermons that we did on justice in October, and those are ways to help us press into this idea of justice. That's the biggest, most important thing that's pressing on us today. The next question kind of pales in comparison in the moment, but nevertheless, it's an important question and one that many people are asking. Oh, wait, before I move on to that, ways to love. So here's ways to listen and to learn primarily, and then ways to love. How do we love? Well, I want you to know that listening and learning is an act of love. When I was on a conference call with a bunch of pastors and church leaders this last week, and many of them... Uh, pastors and leaders of color in the Twin Cities, they said, primarily you as a, as a white pastor, you should be listening and learning right now. That's the way that you love us the most is to, to listen. And then they said, follow the Spirit's promptings, and I forgot to add on here, and local recommendations. So they said, if you want to help, if you want to get involved, if you want to serve, look for local connections, local partnerships. Follow the Holy Spirit's promptings in your life, but look for local connections and partnership. And so there's a way to do that with Transform Minnesota and support the cities. And so those are ways to love. Now, second question, when are we regathering? This is the next big question, the next common question that we're getting here at church. And it's a great question because we're eager to gather and worship, especially in this time when when everything is in our face and out of control and the injustices of the world are, are so prevalent. I, was, I, I got to be in this room this morning as the worship team sang, and it blessed my soul. Thank you, worship team. And, and I, I'm sure it blessed your soul in your home, but there's something unique about being gathered together and singing praises, singing truth to Jesus. And so we're so eager to do this. We cannot wait. This is a question many of you are asking. We sent out a survey this week to kind of gauge where our church is at, and here's what I want to share with you. Our church family is eager but cautious. So many of you express that you're, you can't wait to get back. You're so excited to see your church family. You want to worship with us. You, you want to interact with one another, but you're also cautious because the numbers continue to grow, and there's still a reality of a, of a disease of COVID-19 in our world, and um, it's still a lot of unknowns to it. And there's a lot of precautions that have to be taken for us to gather as a church. And so you as a church family, so many of you filled out that survey. Thank you so much. What we got as we processed all that information is that you're really eager to see one another and to gather again in this church building, but you're cautious. Secondly, as we think through that and pray through that, our church leadership is eager, but we're, uni- we're eager to gather as well, but we're unified in taking a safe, thoughtful, and intentional approach. So we can't wait to open up the doors and have you come and for us to gather in person. But we as leaders, all the different leaders of our church, elders, staff, and our ministry directors, we are unified in taking a safe, thoughtful, and intentional approach. 
as we wrestle through this, think through this. We're not thrilled about outdoor services because of the unpredictable and uncontrollable elements. Many of you mentioned that as an idea in the survey, and we just want you to know we love the idea. If everything works out just right, it's amazing, but not everything always works out just right. It's a beautifully sunny morning, and it's pretty cool out, but it's extremely windy. I actually walked around the building this morning and thought, could we do an outdoor church service this morning, and no, it was too windy. You wouldn't have been able to hear anything. The wind would have blown into the microphones. It would have been a disaster. So personally, I'm glad we didn't plan for an outdoor service this morning. Um, we haven't decided for sure to not do those, but we are definitely not thrilled about it because of the uncontrollable and unpredictable elements. And then lastly, I just want to share with you that we're aiming to regather in the next three to six weeks. The next three to six weeks, we're talking with people, we're making plans, we're wrestling this through, praying this through. We will send you information this week with more specifics. For now, just know within the next three to six weeks, we're planning to gather. Um, that's what I can tell you for now. Let me pray, and then we're going to dive into the sermon for today. We're going to start looking at the book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible, open up to the book of Philippians. Let's pray. O oh, gracious and merciful God, would you let justice roll like a river in our cities, in our nation, and in our world? Would you help us as your people to listen and to learn and to love? As we open the book of Philippians this morning, I ask that you would teach us truth in the trenches of life. For your glory, for the good of our community, and the advancement of of your gospel around the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning we are starting a sermon series in the book, book of Philippians called Truth in the Trenches. This book has incredible truth for us in the trenches of life. I don't know what your trench is today. Maybe, maybe it's just the heaviness of learning about racial injustice in our country. Maybe it's some health diagnosis. Maybe things are spinning out of control in your life. And the book of Philippians gives us truth to cling on to when we're in the trenches of life. The context of this book is the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. He's in jail, most likely when he writes this letter, and actually this church began out of him being thrown in jail unjustly. And so we're going to look at that this morning, and what I want you to know is that this book is filled with God's truth for you to hear, for you to savor, and for you to apply when you're in the trenches of life. Philippi was a Roman colony in the eastern in eastern Macedonia, on the north coast of the Mediterranean Sea. This book was written about 62 AD by the Apostle Paul and his helper Timothy and sent and circulated to the church in Philippi. I'm going to ask that you stand as I read it to get us started. And as we read, we're going to read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And as we walk through this morning, we're going to ask three questions. Who are the saints in Philippi? What is the good work in progress, and why does this matter for us today? Who are the saints in Philippi? What is the good work in progress, and why does this matter for us today? So please stand as I read the introduction to this book. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God in all of my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of you, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God, would you use this book to transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, you may have a seat. And as I mentioned, the three questions that I want us to look at from this text here are, who are the saints in Philippi? Look at verse 1. This letter is addressed to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And so I want to know, who are these people? What's the makeup of these people? Is there anything that we could even learn about who this church is and what made up this church? Who are the saints at Philippi? What is the good work in progress? Verse 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion for the day of Christ Jesus. And so I'm asking, what is the good work that was begun that Jesus will complete? What is the good work that's in progress? And why does it matter for us almost 2,000 years later? So that's where we're going this morning. First question, who are the saints in Philippi? Well, I'm glad that you asked that question because it's an amazing tapestry of people. As we look individually at some of the saints, and we don't know all of the saints in Philippi. We don't know everyone who is a part of the church in Philippi. Certainly the church grew over the years and new characters were introduced, but we actually get to know some of the early characters. And let's start just by staying in Philippians. We're going to move over to Acts 16 in just a minute, but staying in Philippians, we know that Paul is a part of the church, right? Paul, look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So Paul was a church planter, a pastor who started the church in Philippi. Timothy was a ministry helper, a ministry servant who moved along with Paul to different cities, helping him start churches. And actually, Timothy pastored the church in Ephesus for a season of time. But we know that Paul is part of the beginning movement of the church. Paul, what do we know about him? He was a zealous Jew turned Christian, and you can read about this in Acts 8 and 9. Paul was leading the raids on Christians. He was busting into people's homes. He was dragging Christians out into the street. He was persecuting Christians as a zealous Jew until he met Jesus. You can read about this in Acts 8 and 9. And so it's important for us to know that Paul, this central figure in the New Testament, this church planter of the church in Philippi, part of the core team of the church in Philippi, had had his life transformed by Jesus. Let that be a reminder to you, church. You can change. You can be zealous for a cause that you think is righteous in one moment, and you can meet Jesus, and you can change. Jesus transformed and changed Paul's life. He went from being a zealous Jew who was persecuting Christians to being one of the primary proponents of the Christian faith, starting churches all over the region. We have Timothy. 
Timothy is the son of a biracial couple. And so we see in verse 1 of Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy are both present. We understand Paul's life from Acts 8 and 9. Let's flip over now to Acts chapter 16, and we're going to stay in this passage for a couple minutes. So flip with me to Acts chapter 16. We'll look at verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there, a disciple, that's a follower of Jesus, named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So the beginning movement of this church, we're already seeing this this radically diverse movement of God changing people's lives. We see Paul, a zealous Jew turned Christian. We see Timothy, the son of a biracial couple, a Jewish mom, and a Greek or a Gentile dad. Let's move on. Silas. Silas is present with them in Philippi. And we're not going to read all of Acts chapter 16, but we'll look at different portions here. If you read all of Acts chapter 16, you'll get a great overview of the beginning of the church in Philippi. But we know Silas was there. He was part of the ministry in Philippi. Look at verse, well, well, we'll wait. Just what do we know about Silas? Not a ton. You can read Acts chapters 15 through 17 to learn about Silas. What we know about Silas, what we observe about Silas is that he's a steady and faithful companion. He just seems like one of those guys who isn't involved in any controversy. There's nothing distinct about him. He wasn't a zealous Jew turned Christian that we know of. He wasn't the son of a biracial couple that we know of. He was just one of those people who just kind of go with the flow. He was steady. He was faithful. He was there to serve alongside, like many of the people in our communities. He was just living his life, helping how he could. The next character that we meet is Lydia. All right, so to find Lydia, go to Acts chapter 16, verse 11. So, so Paul and Silas are in Philippi. We don't know that Timothy's with them here at the moment. He's not. In fact, later on, he helps Paul write this letter to, to the church in Philippi, but Timothy helped to shape the characteristic of this church from a distance. Paul and Silas are present. They're in Philippi, and listen to the first convert, the first church member. So we have the church leaders here, Paul and Silas, They're the church planters. They started the church. Timothy is a church leader who helps write the letter of Philippians to the church. Church leaders, Paul, Timothy, and Silas. And now we get a look at the first church members. Lydia is the first one. She's a wealthy businesswoman. Look at Acts 16, verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposed, where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Okay, a seller of purple goods. Purple was this luxurious royal color. If you were a seller of purple goods, you were doing well. What we know about Lydia, because she's a seller of purple goods from Thyatira, she was likely a, a Gentile who is seeking God. It says that she was a worshiper of God. She was a spiritually interested Gentile, a seeker. She's spiritually open, religiously open-minded. She's seeking God. 
She's wealthy businesswoman selling purple. She's from the city of Thyatira. She likely has a summer home or a second home in Philippi. And Paul and Silas come into this group of women who are gathered and they share the gospel. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who is a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The zealous Jew turned Christian, now apostle, pastor, church planter, along with Silas, this nondescript, steady and faithful companion, engaging with this, this like, ladies study. <laughs> Guys, if you've ever walked it, I've walked into a couple like showers and ladies studies and groups. My wife often has ladies over to our house and they have like little Bible studies, little groups, little whatever. I hate walking into those. It's so intimidating. I'm like, ah, so many women, they're all staring at me. Paul and Silas, they have this message and, and they find this group of women who are together studying, learning, and they think we've got a message. We've got a reason to, to, to get involved in this group. And they start sharing the gospel and the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then look at verse 15. It's so beautiful. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, and then she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. This wealthy businesswoman, she hears the gospel. She gives her life to Jesus. She becomes a Christian. She becomes a part of the core team of this church plant in the city of Philippi. And they use her home as their church building. It's a house church. She invites Paul and Silas to come and stay with her and her family who have all been converted, who have become followers of Jesus Christ. Look at the diversity in this church. Let's keep going. We're not done. The next character is a slave girl who was demon-possessed. She was a trafficked teenager. Put these two together. You have Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman with multiple homes, homes big enough that she can have people stay with her. And then we have a slave girl who's demon-possessed and being trafficked. Look at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She's being trafficked. She's owned by people who are using her to, to predict the future, to tell the future so that they could get money. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Great, she's got it right. That's exactly who they are. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit. I just love that. Paul gets annoyed. Like, she's following them around. This demon-possessed slave girl who's being trafficked is following them around, proclaiming a proper message. These men are servants of the Most High God. They've come here to proclaim to you the way of salvation. Why is Paul annoyed? I, I don't know why Paul's annoyed. We don't exactly know, other than I think she was being trafficked, right? And so they're wondering, we don't want her and, and her, her owners her, her pimps, for the lack of a better term, to make money off of us. Also, she may be interrupting the messages. Even though she's proclaiming truth, she's interrupting and she's demon-possessed. So Paul, he, he's annoyed and he turns to the Spirit, the end of verse 18 here, and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw 
that their hope of gain was gone. She lost her powers to tell the future because it was demon-influenced. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. This massive city riot. The crowd joined in attacking these people. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. And so Paul and Silas are unjustly imprisoned. They're beaten. They're dragged out in front of this angry mob, this angry crowd. This is the beginning of the church in Philippi. You have the zealous Jew turned Christian, turned Christian. Timothy is involved kind of behind the scenes and later on the son of a biracial couple. Silas, a steady and faithful companion. Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman. The slave girl who's demon-possessed and trafficked. And now Paul and Silas are in prison. And here's where we meet the last character to this church plant. The other core member of the beginning of this church. It's the Roman jailer. He's a military official. He's the police force. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Can you imagine? They're in jail after being beaten and stripped in front of this angry mob in this city riot. They've done nothing wrong other than proclaim abundant life in Jesus. And this demon-possessed woman has been healed of her demons. She was being trafficked. She was being used and abused by the people who controlled the society. That she was, they were using her for their own profit. And Paul and Silas come with this message of reconciliation, of freedom in Jesus. The demons are cast out. She's now set free. And because she's set free, the city riots. They beat Paul and Silas. They strip them naked. They throw them in prison. And they're singing hymns to God. And all the prisoners listening to them. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all of the doors were opened and everybody's bonds were unfastened. So this earthquake sets them all free. Their, their chains are busted. When the jailer woke, I don't know how he slept through the earthquake, but he must have been a tired dude. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself. Because it, it was his job to keep the prisoners there. The prison doors are open. Surely they're all gone. He's going to fall on his sword. That's the noble way for him to die because he's failed at his job. Verse 27. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Because why wouldn't they? The doors are open. The chains are loose. All these criminals and even those like Paul and Silas who are there unjustly, they're going to think, this is my opportunity. I wasn't supposed to be here anyway. And if you keep reading in Acts chapter 16, we find out that Paul is a Roman citizen. And so what they did to Paul and Silas was illegal. The, the beating, the flogging, dragging them out in public, and then putting them in jail, it was illegal. And so the jailer is thinking, everyone's gone. 
I'm going to take my own life. Verse 29, uh, 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights. You're thinking if there was a big earthquake, how were, how were there lights? Weren't, wasn't there electricity out? No, they didn't have electricity. They had lanterns. Remember? It was like 2,000 years ago. There wasn't a light switch to flip. They, they ran in with their lanterns. They rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down. And the jailer called, verse 29, for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He knows that something is different with these Jesus followers. They've humbled themselves. They didn't take the opportunity to escape. Instead, they stayed to minister to the jailer. To the, to the police officer who, who was doing his job of, of carrying out injustice. And because of their humility, because of their self-sacrifice, because they stayed when they could have gone, this Roman jailer is struck with what this Jesus can do. He says, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And then they go to his house. They share the gospel. They spoke the word of the Lord. Verse 33. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. He and all of his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What an incredible beginning to a church. Amen. Do you see the diversity here? How do these people get along? They have nothing in common. They don't get along except for Jesus. This is the church. This is what Jesus does. He brings these type of people together. These type of people laying down their own lives, laying down their own rights, laying down their own perspectives for the gospel good of one another. This is the core team to the church in Philippi. So as we study the book of Philippians, as we look for truth in the trenches of life, understand the type of trench that this core team was in. Keep in mind who these people are as flip back to flip back to Philippians chapter one. As we read this book and study this book, keep in mind when Paul says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, this is who he's talking to. A military official, a Roman jailer, a slave girl who was demon possessed and trafficked. Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman, these people are doing life together now because they have found unity and a bond in the fellowship of Jesus Christ. Amen? I wish you were here to give me an amen. Type it into the chat. This is who the saints in Philippi are, and let that be an encouragement to you, church. Now, just real quickly, we're going to touch on the last couple things. What is a good work in progress? Verse 6. So we know who these saints are. 
So important to keep in mind the characters at play. Verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, remember Jesus, he's the one who brought them salvation. Remember that good work. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So what is the good work in progress? Well, the first good work is conversion. We saw this in Acts 16 over and over again. It's conversion. Conversion is belief in who Jesus is, what Jesus did or does, and I put did, does, because he did something on the cross in his life and on the cross, but he continues to do that. His work is, his sacrifice in our place on our behalf is finished, but the work that it causes to be done in this world and in our lives continues on. Conversion is to believe in who Jesus is, what Jesus has done or continues to do in our place on our behalf, and it's a commitment to follow him. That's what we saw in Acts chapter 16, that, that these people gave their life to Jesus. They believed. They had this, this mental assent to who Jesus was, but they had more so than just a mental assent. They had this posture of humility to submit and surrender their lives to him and to receive the gift of new life that he gives. They converted. Lydia, from being a Gentile God-fearer, became a Jesus worshiper. The Roman jailer, from being a Roman official with many different religious and spiritual influences as a Roman official, he gave all of that up and put his faith in Jesus. The demon-possessed slave girl, from being filled with all this demonic oppression and being used by people that that demonic oppression would gain them a profit and gain them money, her demons are cast out. And we don't, I guess we don't specifically know that she converted to Christianity, but Jesus set her free of her demonic oppression. So the good work that is in progress is, first of all, conversion. That's what Jesus wants to do here and now in our cities. He wants people to place their faith in him and receive life eternal, abundant life, freedom from oppression, freedom from demons, freedom from discord, from racism, from strife, from hatred, from anger. And then the second work is sanctification. Sanctification is progressive growth in thinking and acting like Jesus. And we see this in verse 9, 10, and 11 of Philippians 1. Look at this. So, so verse 6, Paul says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. What's the good work? It's conversion. It's converting to following Jesus. And then it's a continual, continual growth in that relationship with Jesus. Look at how 9, 10, and 11 says it. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God and the praise of God. So the good work is that people are being converted to Christianity or to the way of Jesus. People are choosing to follow Jesus, and then they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're being empowered to progressively, to ever-increasingly think and act more like Jesus. That's what our world needs right now. It needs more people who are thinking and acting like Jesus. And this is what he is doing in us. He's, God is using the church and his spirit, which is active in this world, to bring people into the family, to convert people to the way of Jesus, 
and he is empowering the church and the world through his spirit to think and act more like Jesus. This is how we bring justice to bear. We become more like Jesus and we live out Jesus' way and his ethics. And the last question, why does this matter for us 2,000 years later? Hopefully you already know as we walk through it. There's so much in this story that applies and matters so specifically today. But let's talk about two reasons why it matters for us. The first is that it's an example of the church leading the way in reconciliation, justice, and unity. The church is meant to be a diverse family united by Christ and growing in love. Church, as we study the book of Philippians and as we look at God's truth for the trenches of life, we need to keep in mind that the church, and it's a capital C there because it's not just Park Community Church, it's the church of Jesus Christ. We are supposed to lead the way in reconciliation, justice, and unity. Justice is God's heart. It's the cry of our world, and it's the job of the church of Jesus Christ to bring it to bear on earth. And so this matters. Looking at the history and the makeup of the church in Philippi matters because it reminds us that we, the family of God, are inherently a diverse, multi-ethnic movement because we uniquely believe that all people are created in the image and likeness of God. No other institution on earth believes that. The church, the people of God, believe that all people are created in the image of God and have inherent dignity, worth, and value. And so we gather as a church as this diverse, multi-ethnic family, united by Jesus. Not by music styles, not by hobbies, not by where we go on the weekends, not by where we hang out or what we think or what we do. We're united in Jesus. Nothing else unites these people here in Philippi. What do the traffic, demon-possessed, poor slave girl and the Roman jailer have in common? What does Lydia, the rich businesswoman and the Roman jailer have in common? What does Paul, the zealous Jew-turned-Christian, have in common with any of them? Jesus. Jesus unites. Jesus brings together. And in him we grow in love. That's what Philippians 1, 9 through 11 is telling us. To grow in love. Verse 9, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And then lastly, this matters for us today because it empowers communion. It empowers our communion by reminding us that righteousness comes from Christ alone. Look at verse 11. So Paul is praying his prayer here for the church in Philippi and 2,000 years later for us is that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so understanding this passage, understanding the background of this passage empowers our communion by reminding us that righteousness comes from Christ alone. It's not you just figuring out how to live better. It's by receiving the free gift of righteousness that God has given you in Jesus. And in order to grow in righteousness, in order to be more like Jesus, to think more like Jesus, and to act more like Jesus, we must grow in the righteousness that we've been given. In order to do that, we must commune with the one, with the righteous one, Jesus, who died in our place. 
Jesus is the only righteous person you've ever met and you ever will meet. He lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death in your place, on your behalf, and now he has granted you, if you are in him, he has granted you his spirit so that you would become more and more like him. And this happens as we cling to him, as we commune with him, as we remember that he is the all-sufficient sacrifice. And so this morning, let's remember that together.